you have your Bibles with you this morning, we'll be in 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, we'll be in verses 17 through 34. Uh, knowing that the Lord's Supper was going to happen uh, this particular Sunday, I thought, you know, for us to step back and you know, read one of the more common, uh, more uh, expected passages once it comes to the Lord's Supper as it relates to Paul uh, sending a letter to the Corinthians about the importance and why the importance of the Lord's Supper. And so I hope this not only uh, deepens us into uh, the, the life of Christ, but also the life of us as the body of, the, of, of Christ, and then transitions us into the reception of the Lord's Supper here in a few minutes. If you found your spot, would you please stand for the reading of Christ's Word? May you hear the word of Christ. What I have to talk about now isn't a matter for praise. When you meet together, you make things worse, not better. What I mean is this. To begin with, I hear that when you come together in the assembly, there are divisions among you. Well, I believe it, at least partly. There are bound to be groupings among you. That's how the genuine ones among you will stand out, I suppose. So when you gather together into one meeting, it isn't the Lord's Supper that you eat. Everyone brings their own food to eat, and one person goes hungry while another gets drunk. Haven't you got houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise God's assembly and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say? Shall I praise you? No, in this matter I shall not. This, you see, is what I received from the Lord and handed on to you. On the night when the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, it's for you. Do this as a memorial for me. He did the same with the cup after the supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do this as a memorial of me. For whatever you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes. It follows from this that anyone who eats and drinks uh, of, of the cup, the Lord, in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone shall test themselves. That's how you should eat and drink of the cup. You see, if you eat and drink without recognizing the body, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. That's why several of you are weak and sick and some have died. But if you have learned how to judge yourselves, we would not incur judgment. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are punished so that we won't be condemned along with the world. So, my brothers and sisters, when you come together and eat, treat one another as honored guests by waiting for each other. If anyone is hungry, they should eat at home so that you don't come together and find yourselves facing judgment. I will put this and other matters into hand when I come. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for the gift of your word. We also thank you for the gift of being the body of your son, that we are the bride of your son. And so as we meet together, may our hearts be strangely warmed so that we might see you in our midst, so that we might listen and hear your words that are so important and vital for our daily living to be able to see how your son's life can be spilled out into our own. And so, Lord, may you speak at this time of how we can take and eat of the Lord's Supper and take and eat of this, own, of this text, this passage, 
so that we might glorify your son with our lives. We offer these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. If I could uh, bring us to just a slight bit of reminder of what we started in the month of July, and it's that question of what does it mean to be justice bearers? If, if Christ is the true justice bearer, that it is through his life, death, and resurrection that we are made right, to be made right is to bring forth justice before our Father, and then God sends us as justice bearers into the world. What does this all mean as it relates to the Lord's Supper? I hope we can sort of answer that question or at least explore that question a little bit more this morning. Home economics, home ec. Who had it? Remember home ec? Oh, yes. Mainly, you learned a little bit of sewing in home ec, baking, particular cooking that was involved, maybe knitting and ironing, certain things that you have uh, as it relates to nutritional science that was involved in there, maybe a certain level of finances that I hear that take place in some home ec classes. Regardless of exactly what you learned, you probably learned some very important life skills in that class. We could even say that home ec is this organization, this ordering of your home life. It's a homemaking, right? Think of that word, homemaking. When we make our homes, we are cultivating our homes to be peaceable, to be uh, inviting, to be welcoming. That's a part of what it means to be homemakers. And this is a task not for just women, but it's a task for men as well. And so when I think of homemakers, to this day, I have to think of Chip and JoJo. You know who I'm talking about. And if you haven't, let me just go ahead and say, pick any day of this week and you just turn to HGTV. At some point, you will see a show with Chip and JoJo involved. And so Chip and JoJo become these, uh, they become these idols of, of none other than... Uh, homemakers. What does it mean for us to be homemakers? We are the people who are inviting people into our homes and hopefully welcoming them into our homes, but that's what these two do. They go and, and look for real estate and help clients decide about which is the best house. Of these three, which one do you have to choose? And after they choose, they then work to transform that entire home so that it will be welcoming, inviting to their family. And they'll take this 100-year-old farmhouse and turn it into this magnificent piece of architecture where it looks like a modern-day farmhouse. They'll add this rustic metal and this very solid wood oak throughout the entire house. And of course, we can't forget what for JoJo? What does she have to have? Shiplap, right? Have to have shiplap somewhere in this house. That's homemaking, church. The creation of a house into a home, that's homemaking. That's home economics from an empty real estate into a welcoming space where families grow, marriages flourish, and neighbors and strangers are welcome into the home, that is a part of home economics. That's home ec. So let me transition to this, uh, to talk about the Lord's Supper as 
home economics or really better homemaking. The better we understand this connection, I think the better we'll understand and embody the meaning and purpose of the Lord's Supper. So the primary question we have before us this morning, this Sunday morning, is what has the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, to do with just living? What does it have to do with just living, justice bearers in our own lives? So if we are to take of the Lord's Supper, uh, supper and we often remember what our Lord did on our behalf, how does that translate into us being justice bearers in our own lives? So let's look at the scriptures again uh, in the passage that we just read a few minutes ago. In 1 Corinthians 11, look at verses 18 and 19. Paul isn't too happy. He begins sort of this transition to what they're particularly doing, this Corinthian church are doing in verses 18 and 19. It says, when you meet together, you gather and there are divisions among you. There are groupings that are happening within the church. Of course, when we talk about family, there's going to be a, a common metaphor that happens throughout the entire New Testament. And it's referring to the family. I mean, you refer to one another as a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ. That's family language that is happening and just like any family, guess what? There's going to be quarrels. There's going to be bickering. There's going to be some sort of division that happens within the church family at some point. And so Paul is targeting that right there. And in fact, notice what he says in verses 20 and 22. So when you gather together into one meeting, it isn't the Lord's Supper that you eat. Everyone brings their own food to eat. One person goes hungry while another gets drunk. Haven't you got houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise God's assembly and shame those who have nothing? For our American eyes, 2,000 years after this scripture was written, we, were miss, we miss something. If we go sort of to the heart of what's happening, I and mean, he's writing to actual people in a place called Corinth. So what is going on that Paul is so upset over and what is he addressing? And it's this. When he's talking about the division through eating and drinking, he's asking them to wrestle with this question. Here it is. To what family and to what household do you belong to, Corinthians? What family and to what household do you belong to? So let's step back and look at a little bit of history of what's going on why there's so much division happening and what's sort of the disconnect for these Corinthians as they're taking of the Lord's Supper. If you belong to Caesar and to his home economics, there were many social divisions in his day. In that day and time in Corinth, wherever Rome ruled, there were many social divisions. Well, first off, the slave couldn't eat with some sort of elite. You couldn't. Male and female, completely separated from these meals. Men would eat with men, women would eat with women. Then you would have those who were financially very well off. Well, they were treated like kings. They would have the best places at the table. Whereas the ones who were poor, completely excluded. You did not allow the poor into the meals of Rome. Or you could have a different household that you belong to, a different home economics that Paul is addressing. 
such as the household of Jesus, where social divisions have been united through his own cross, where slave and free eat together well, male and female eat together, and the financially well-off and the poor, they both eat like kings. And so for the early Christians in Corinth, and as you can see uh, in the letter to the Romans as well, that the world was ruled by Caesar and the empire. And so when you read the civil and political laws that are taking place, the eating arrangements that took place in all households, even the taxes, their so, uh, sexual ethics, their social ethics, and even the place in society, they were all ruled by Roman society. And so you have for the early church a disconnect between how these Christians were supposed to interact with one another in the Lord's Supper. That's the main target that Paul is addressing. These public meals in this Roman culture were called symposias. They were places where you would gather for food, you would gather for fellowship and educated discussion. You had to be some sort of education in your past to be able to conversate about whatever was happening in Rome or about very artistic ideals. You had to be very smart and wise in order to partake in these symposias. These meals, in fact, were mirrored. They were echoed throughout all of the empire of Rome. How the greatest of these Roman worlds ate and drank and conversed and met with one another, it actually trickled down into the households of Rome. And this is what was expected of any Roman house. You didn't bring the poor in. You didn't bring those who had no education in. They were completely shut off. In other words, what's most noticeable about these elites is how the rest of the Roman world was expected to eat. The dinners that took place... They were reserved for men who had very similar financial statuses as other men. Then you had women and slaves who were completely excluded from these meals. Unless the slave was there to work the actual meal itself for the more generous and more uh, 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 financially well-off men. And even the seating arrangements. You knew who was the most popular by where they sat. You knew where and how they functioned in society by where they sat at that dinner table. And so Paul is reversing all of this. How you know the Roman world eats? He's saying it's not that way with the Lord's Supper. In fact, one uh, scholar and one writer says this, Rather than the weaker, the poor, being forced to submit to the strong in the typical Roman world, the powerful here in this passage are actually the ones who are obligated to bear and to carry the weaknesses of the powerless. The stronger ones are there supposed to serve the weaker ones, not the opposite direction. You see, the empire of Caesar, it focused on wealth. It focused on status and power. And in so doing, it exploited and it degraded those who were lesser than those very well-off rich men and especially women and slaves. And these others who don't belong a part of this supper, this symposia, you aren't equal in dignity and worth. You cannot partake of this Roman supper. 
So the symposia, the meal of Rome, was far from a meal of love. It was far from a dinner of thanksgiving, and it was a table where grace was not extended at all. You were expected to be a certain status to take part in these meals. And so here you have Paul saying this in some sort of harsh rebuke in verse 22. Do you despise God's assembly and shame those who have nothing? There's a better king for Paul. There's a better way to show that this king has displayed his love and he has taught us to eat and drink differently than the way the Roman world is structured. There's a new social order. There's a new way to be able to express what this king is about through even the eating and drinking. So glance back at what Paul says and here he continues this passage in verses 23 through 26 and he's retelling in many ways what he received from the disciples. This, you see, is what I received from the Lord and handed on to you. On the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body. It's for you. Do this as a memorial of me. He did the same with the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink of it, you do this as a memorial of me. For whenever you eat and drink of this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until He comes. Did you catch that first part? When this meal was first offered, there was a traitor in the midst. Who was it? It was Judas. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray Him and turn Him over to Jewish authorities in order to crucify Him. And yet, here in this meal... Jesus still shares the bread and the cup with this traitor. Isn't that remarkable? I find that just completely staggering. He was going to share this meal even when a traitor was amongst them. The Christian meal, the Lord's Supper, was, had made its way into the Roman world when it spread throughout. And all of these people, whether you're slave or free, when you professed Christ as king, they were invited to eat together. When you professed Christ as king and Caesar was not, whether you were male or female, you came and ate together. That was revolutionary in his day. Absolutely revolutionary. In Rome, when they saw this happening, it wasn't revolutionary for them. It was revolting. Because you have to have status to eat of our meals You have to have a certain intellectual ability to eat with our meals. You couldn't have the poor and the marginalized eat of these meals with the free and the more educated and the richer. That was ridiculous. But yet, this Christian meal, this agape meal, it invited all, regardless of your economic or financial status, regardless of your race or ethnicity, regardless of whether you're male or female, regardless of your standing in society as a political elite or the lowest of slaves, everyone was invited, if you professed Christ as King, to partake of this meal because it was a family meal. A family meal. You didn't eat beside a slave, you ate beside a brother in Christ. You didn't eat beside a less valuable woman, you ate beside a sister in Christ. The family meal itself. It prioritized you as a part of the family and not your status in Roman society. 
In other words, church, if we exclude anyone who follows Jesus from his table, we're essentially saying this, there are boundaries to grace. There are boundaries to grace, and you're not permitted to partake of his grace. In this letter, in his letter to the Romans, and even the Corinthians here, we see that Paul becomes very concerned about the divisions that are taking place in both of these churches. That they were sort of sneaking in this Roman symposia style meal into the Lord's Supper. But that's a meal of inequalities. That is a meal that divides and a meal that completely betrays grace. This is one of the very reasons why Paul urges the Corinthians in verses 28 to 29 to test themselves, to recognize the body, those who are around, not just the body of Christ, the bread and the cup, but to recognize the body around you. That's why this meal, the Lord's Supper, memorializes and it remembers to fight and dispute, to quarrel, to be jealous, and to disregard the unifying and peacemaking sacrifice in Christ. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. It is a unifying because you have professed that this Christ has unified you as brother and sister together. And it's this elder brother, Christ, who has invited you to partake of this very meal. Grace brings together. Have you ever seen that in your life? Grace brings together. It's the fighting that divides. But when you extend grace, it brings together, it unifies through self-giving love. When you look at the very life of Christ, when you look at the very death of Christ, you see Him unifying because He extends grace upon grace wherever He goes. One final note for the Lord's Supper. Notice this, when the church in Corinth greatly misunderstood the Lord's Supper, and I want us to catch this, when they under, because they greatly misunderstood the Lord's Supper, they thereby unjustly abused people. That should shock us. Because they abused the Lord's Supper, they actually also abused others. Because they understood the Supper as one of division, because they're bringing in that Roman symposia, they're also introducing division. Oh, you can't eat with us. You don't make this money. Oh, you're a slave. You got to stay out there. You cannot partake of this meal because you haven't met the standards that Rome has set. This is why Paul says in verses 21 and 22, everyone brings their own food to eat and one go person goes hungry while another gets drunk. Do you despise God's assembly? Instead, Paul offers this advice. So, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, treat one another as honored guests by waiting for each other. The, the word there is serving one another. Even though he doesn't directly say it here, he does mention it to the church at Rome, another group of churches that also misunderstood the Lord's Supper. He writes, welcome one another in Romans 15, 7. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Have you ever put that together? That when you welcome somebody, you're actually glorifying God? When you see somebody as probably a visitor in the name of Christ, you see somebody as an image bearer, that you are glorifying God because you're honoring and dignifying them as a human being. 
And of course, a couple of writers say about this verse in 15.7 of Romans, the corollary would be that in absence of such welcome, in the absence of such welcome, God is not glorified. When you do not welcome, God is not glorified. When you welcome, God is glorified. There's a connection between those two. And I hope we wrestle with this statement. I really do. Because... The same applies for the church in Corinth in Rome, but it also applies for Hickory Grove in Trenton, Tennessee as well. That how we understand the Lord's Supper will affect how we treat people. Let me say it again. How we understand the Lord's Supper will affect how we treat people. If we truly understand that these two are connected, we will see that grace has no boundaries in the Lord's Supper has no boundaries. We will likely be unwelcoming to those if we understand that grace does have boundaries. If you and I misunderstand it as Rome and Corinth did, we can be unwelcoming too. It's a part of us. We have this broken side of us that we can be unwelcoming. Guess what? We can be dissenters. We can cause division as well. But Christ continues to bring us back through His Word to remember that the grace that has been extended to you you should extend it to others. As you welcome one another, God is glorified. Because it is this, church, when we display the gospel of grace and unity found ultimately in the crucified king, we're bringing this all back together to home economics, to homemaking. One of the most common metaphors, as I already said, from the New Testament is the family. And when you go home today, you know that brother and sister and mother and dad, there's an organization there. There's a stewardship there, right? You don't just let your children do whatever you want them to do. You actually organize their lives in a way that they are patterned in order to love God and love people. They, we actually steward our homes and then we care for our homes so much that we want them to genuinely be so saturated in grace that they become whole human beings that love God. Lord's Supper, I would say, is where this begins. Lord's Supper is the family meal that reminds us of why and how we are to organize, govern, steward, and care for our home, our family, our church right here. And with Christ is the head of the church. We understand that our elder brother has extended his grace through the cross. And he has invited anyone who has confessed that he is king to come and partake of that memorial meal. And so we remember what Christ has done on our behalf. And then we extend that grace towards others. And so just like the Roman and Corinthian church 2,000 years ago, the Lord's Supper is a meal about home economics. It has been prepared for us so that we dine at the table with our eldest brother and with our brothers and sisters that we are reminded that we are saturated in His grace. So despite social status, despite how much we do and do not have in our bank accounts, despite our race, despite whether we're male or female, we are reminded at the table of the Lord's Supper that grace governs our path. That grace is guiding us to see the world under no other king but Jesus himself. Let us pray.
Father, we thank you for the reminder that it is indeed grace that governs our path this very day that we have been extended a great favor, not merit. It's nothing that we've done, nothing that we have bought, nothing that we have in our bank accounts, but it is by sheer grace that you invite us to partake not only of your life to, to live in the way that you have called us to live, but also to partake of a meal that you have gifted to us, to remember that we are grace bearers, but also justice bearers. And so, Lord, prepare our hearts. If I could just pause for us for 10 seconds. Prepare our hearts to receive the grace that has been extended to us. That we might think on your life, your death, and your resurrection on our behalf. It has been gifted to us. And so, Lord, in a few minutes as we receive your supper, may we be truly reminded that we are a people who are to extend grace and to extend the unity that has been made in your life, death, and resurrection. And that doesn't mean an extending of unity here just in the church family, but into our families at home, that we can bear justice at home. We can extend grace at home. So, May we never forget that it isn't just taking of a meal and then we walk out of here and it's over. It is a partaking of your life wherever you send us. And so, Lord, may that indeed be before us after we leave from this place this day. We offer these things in the name of Christ. Amen.